Welcome to Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture, a podcast from Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of the Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics. We're here today with a very distinguished guest, Dr. Gilbert Maylander, who is Senior Research Professor of Theology at Valparaiso University and held a longtime endowed chair in Christian Ethics at Valparaiso. Uh, he also served on President George W. Bush's uh, uh, National Bioethics Advisory Commission. He's the author of more books and articles than we have time to list here, but his most recent book uh, entitled Bioethics and the Character of Human Life, I described it, uh, and I think Gil agreed with me that it was a, it's a collection of Dr. Maylander's greatest hits uh, of throughout, throughout his, his academic career. Uh, and he has done, in my view, what uh, professors of theology ought to be doing, which is putting their theology to work in the service of ethical issues uh, and in, in particularly in service of things that have to do with public policy uh, and the pursuit of the common good in the, bro- in the broader culture. So, Gil, thank you so much for being with us, and I really appreciate your new book uh, and look forward to getting into some of, the, some of the topics that are discussed. Thank you. Good to be here. You know, the first part of your book has to do with your time on President George W. Bush's Bioethics Commission in the early part, early to mid part of the 2000s. Uh, tell us, I think our, our listeners, I think, would be very interested in that experience. So I'm, I'm curious to know, what did you learn from that experience? And what were some of the best contributions, in your view, of the commission to the bioethics community? Well, I learned it's very hard to make people happy. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the President's Council was formed because of the issue of embryonic stem cell research. That was really the, uh, the galvanizing issue that led President Bush to, to form the council, although the council's charge was, uh, was very broad and we did not have to stick only to that question. And we didn't, in fact, before, uh, before we were done. But uh, we began with the stem cell question and the council was, uh, was deeply divided on that question. A lot of people, and in fact, if you, if you were to go back and read the, the news articles about the formation of the council, you would see that the general view was that this was going to be a sort of right-wing cabal established mm-hmm. by, by George W. Bush. Didn't turn out to be that at all. Uh, uh, and in fact, it wasn't intended to be that. It was, it was deeply divided on a question like embryonic stem cell research. But in terms of our contributions, I, I think that the very first report that we issued, Human Cloning and Human Dignity, which dealt with the stem cell issue, was one of our major contributions because there are several chapters in there that that really try to sort through the arguments, both pro and con, and I think do it in a pretty fair and respectable way. That was an important contribution. And a few other reports that we did over time. Uh, One of them was called Beyond Therapy. That's about enhancement that has gotten a lot of use actually in academic settings. Uh, We did a, a short little report called Alternative Sources of Pluripotent Human Stem Cells, which simply talked about other possible ways to try to get stem cells that would do pretty much everything that uh, embryonic stem cells can do. I think that was a real contribution because it suggested that simply saying no to research that destroyed embryos was not necessarily saying research progress couldn't be made. So a number of our reports, I think, were uh, important. I think in some ways, though, uh, maybe an even more important contribution of the commission was the way we work. This commission was not just made up of people who were bioethicists. In fact, Leon Cass, who was the first chair of the council, liked to say it was a council uh, on bioethics, not a council of bioethicists. 
we heard from people in the bioethics world. We, uh, we heard from scientific researchers on uh, various topics that we took up. But then the, the council, which was made up of uh, people with a wide range of ex- different types of expertise, council did its own ethical reflection. We didn't think of ourselves as just trying to set public policy, but of trying to think through some of the, uh, some of the deeper issues that uh, citizens in general uh, should be concerned about. And I think that that way of, of working, though uh, pretty rare actually among national bioethics uh, bodies, offered a different way to think about these matters and was, and was a, a genuine contribution to the council. You know, I, I, I concur on that. Uh, in fact, one of the things that I found most helpful in your work in the, the, of the, the entire commission, not only the reports, uh, and actually I, I used Beyond Therapy as a text in one of my classes for several years uh, during that time period, but uh, th- just getting the chance to look at the deliberations of the commission, I thought was so helpful because you could see the interaction, the interchange that went on, and you could see how the commission actually uh, came to, came to some of their consensus views, but also some of the really serious disagreements uh, that were, you know, that were just a part of the discussion. Uh, and I had my students, you know, regularly access some of some of those uh, the the transcripts of of some of the discussion sections, which were very very revealing. We uh, I don't want to take a long time to tell the story, but we had a really interesting experience. There was a, uh, a college class, it was a science class, dealing with some of the issues in genetics and so forth, in which the professor had her students, all each student was assigned a particular member of the council, and they had to uh, be that person as best they oh, could in, uh, in class uh, discussions. And then at some point, she got funding somehow, brought the whole class to uh, to one of our meetings, and we got uh, each of us uh, got to talk to our person and so forth. It was a lot of fun, and I think that probably was a, a useful experience for students to actually try to think their way into somebody else's yeah. uh, way of thinking. Not an easy thing to do. Well, so, and it's probably a good thing that you got a chance to for each of you to meet your evil twin at the same That's time. Right. Um, now, one other question on the commission: uh, if you had, if you could do that experience over again, what would you have done differently? Well, I'm not sure how best to answer that. I, I think that I, I would have looked for a way, I'm not sure what the way was, to try to encourage all the members to understand as best they could the way the other people thought. Um, there, There is, I mean, we had, we had some first-rate scientists, uh, both medical researchers and uh, medical clinicians. They tend to be a little impatient with those of us who don't think in their categories, but think in a rather different set of mm-hmm. categories, philosophical, theological, ethical, and so forth. I had always had the feeling that we worked harder to try to figure out what, what they were saying <laughs> than they were to figure out what we were saying. And I would look for a way to try to do that better. Um, it's not easy. Um, and I'm not sure that a better way uh, could be found. But it, I think it's the, it's the crucial problem for a, a body constituted in the way ours was. It's very hard to work out. You know, Gil, I know that, uh, you know, from following your work, you know, so much of what, what you hold and the positions you take emerges out of your, your rich theological background. Uh, how, did you, how did you bring your religious beliefs, your theological background into the commission's deliberations, while at the same time, you know, re- recognizing that you're in a pluralistic group uh, where there's a wide variety of religious, non-religious convictions that are playing out? 
that was obviously a big problem, or I don't know, problem, a, a large issue anyway, that a group like the council uh, had to confront. And people had quite different views on it. Even uh, even some of, the, some of the other members who were quite religious held different views. Some tend to think that in discussion like that, they, uh, they should bracket entirely their religious views. Others uh, don't. I don't myself. My, uh, my view starts with the, with the belief that everybody, religious or non-religious, who's participating in that kind of discussion turns out to have certain kinds of beliefs that are at least quasi-religious. They're metaphysical in character. You can't think about questions like the place of suffering in human life, whether there are things we shouldn't do even in order to try to achieve good results. You can't think about questions like that without finally beginning to uh, think in terms that that religious thinkers will will recognize as being the sorts of issues that they they work with and care about. My own view is that citizens owe each other an honest account of why they think what they do. You can't really come to understand what your fellow citizens think if they don't articulate fully what is at work in their views. And so it seems to me that we ought to want each other to articulate as fully as we can whatever the underlying underlying beliefs are. That's what I try to do. Now, you don't do it every minute. I mean, you don't drop your your religious beliefs on people constantly, but you don't hesitate to articulate them when it's necessary. One of the ways in which, one of the things that this council did that was pretty unusual and, and strange in some ways, but that made this possible, for every report that we issued, we always allowed individual council members to write their own postscript, their own personal view uh, at the end. And sometimes, uh, I think, and one, we had as many as like 14 different council members, I think, uh, write their their own short take on it. But that's a place when you're not speaking for the council as a whole, uh, you're simply speaking for yourself, where you can, can articulate more fully what you take the underlying issues to be and the underlying reasons that move you to your view. And um, there was a time or two when I specifically did that, in fact. So uh, it, when, when it can become a sort of reductio ad absurdum when uh, every individual member offers his or her own take on the, uh, the supposed joint report. And yet there's a difference between the joint report and what any individual wants to say. And it was a useful way to, to allow sort of one's views about deeper metaphysical or, or just call them humanistic issues uh, to emerge. And, uh, and I thought it was good that we did it. It does, you know, it does seem uh, disingenuous, maybe a little strong a term, but maybe it just seems incomplete uh, to ask people to bracket out those meta- metaphysical or religious, you know, foundations for how they view, just how they view the world and to pretend that that doesn't impact the views that they take on really important issues uh, you know, that have direct, you know, really have direct bearing on some of those things. I, I think it's just, that's asking a lot for people to, to just to continually bracket those out uh, and, and to do, you know, to do bioethics or to do, to do what, whatever you're deliberating on just with those, with those sort of on the sidelines. Um, and I, re- I remember actually sitting around the lunch table with you and some other colleagues at uh, one of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignities meetings, uh, and you reflecting on your experience with the commission and saying that, you know, that in the aftermath of that, you were, you were even more committed to, 
to being clear and unequivocal about how you how your Christian faith impacts the positions you take, and sort of letting the chips fall where they would, uh, in terms of whether it was well received or not. Uh, and I, 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 yeah, I found that a really interesting take on uh, your experience there. Well, I think I, you're right that that's the view I, uh, to some degree, had and certainly came to. And I think that, um, as I said, everybody has views that are at least quasi-religious, and the trick is to be honest about it. Let me look at some. Let's look at some of the issues in your book. Your book ta- tackles a whole litany of different bioethical issues, from human enhancement to uh, eugenics and genetic technologies to gene editing to euthanasia. Uh, in fact, I think one of I think the best contribution of uh, the Commission during the time you were on it is the beyond therapy work, and I would commend that to our listeners. Do you is is that works to all the commission's work still available at the Georgetown Edu link? Yes, it is. I believe it's all available. Um, certainly, most of it is, and uh, some of those pieces beyond therapy is one uh, you can still order it. Uh, you could get a you know in print copy oh. of it. Okay. Um, so Beyond Therapy deals with the area of human enhancement where we're using medical technologies not, but not so much to treat disease but to enhance otherwise normal human traits. How might we reflect a bit theologically on the subject of human enhancement? Well, Beyond, beyond Therapy, though not a, a theological document, obviously since it's a report of the council, nevertheless is an interestingly philosophical document. I, I always like to point out that uh, this report of the council is a rather long, highly philosophical document that doesn't make a single policy recommendation. It's, it simply invites people to try to think about what it means to be human, not to, not to think only about what we should do, but about what we should hope for and, and desire. And so the document takes up uh, various various areas of life in which we might be inclined or tempted to enhance human beings, a uh, relation of parents to children and, and trying to produce children of the sort that we want, uh, strength, uh, and I'm not sure what, what the word, I can't remember what the word we was, but we, we used any longer, but making human beings more powerful, the happy souls, we talked about it, trying to, the mind uh, and memory uh, support. And I'm blanking on what the fourth one was at the moment. But anyway, what we, what we were interested in was not so much simply analyzing various ways of enhancing, but thinking about why someone would want to do this, what, uh, what it tells us about ourselves as human beings, what the uh, dangers are. That is to say, we talked primarily about ends or goals, not about means. That's what, the, uh, that's what the report does. And I think when you try to take it up in that way, it is necessarily a theological topic. Uh, you don't have to call it theological if you don't want, but you're thinking about what it means to be human, uh, what it would mean to try to uh, perfect our humanity, whether perfecting it is something that's actually desirable. That's, uh, that's what the report is about. And I think it's, uh, I, th- I think for what it tried to do, it accomplished it pretty well. I know that it's been used in academic settings a good bit. I don't know what else to say. It was, it was, it was, 
useful in providing a, a different way of thinking. You, usually discussions of enhancement just talk about different techniques for enhancement. Uh, and, and if there are worries about them, it's simply that we might, we might try to do it before we really know as much as we should, or there might be harms that we don't anticipate. The kind of worries that we explore are worries more about human desire and uh, what human beings want to be. It's a different sort of concern. Yeah, I can I can see if, if since those are the questions that are being raised, it's it's hard not to think theologically about what what some of those ends might be. Um, so, what, give give us just one example of a. a a, a theological tenet or principle that you brought to bear on on some of the ends of human enhancement. Uh, interestingly, there are there are two ways of thinking about enhancement that, in a certain sense, come at it from quite different angles. One is to try to think about whether enhancing human human capacities in certain ways sort of undercuts our created agency, whether, whether human beings are not meant to simply work on themselves, but are to be at work in the world. And so it, it in a certain sense, the notion is it diminishes what creatures are meant to be if we simply think of ourselves as objects to be worked on. That was, that was one angle. You can, on the other hand, you can think of it not so much as uh, diminishing, but as um, making too much of human capacities, a, a sort of a prideful attempt to uh, reshape ourselves, not diminishing, but pushing ever forward in uh, what, what uh, one member of the council, Michael Sandel, called hyper-agency as opposed to diminish agency. But both of these are ways of kind of losing some sense of what it means to be uh, limited uh, human beings. And along the way, we may lose sometimes some sense of the givenness and the giftedness of human life. Now, you can you can uh, you can use giftedness language in uh, sort of a purely ordinary way, not meaning anything specifically religious or theological by it. Although, the more you talk about our given human life as gifted, the more some people will hear. Uh, religious undertones to that, and I think they're finally not wrong uh, to hear it. So, uh, so on the one hand, um, we 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 sort of diminish what we are as human beings if we simply think of ourselves as material to be worked on, and on the other hand, we make of ourselves too much. We we take charge of human life in a way that, that loses some sense of what a human being ought to be, and in the end, may take sort of more responsibility than human beings ought to. It, it, it becomes a kind of a quest for a sort of godlike power or responsibility. And again, as, you, as soon as you use that a word like godlike, you're obviously using religious sort of language, but you can make the point without, uh, without that language. And yet I think more deeply there are religious understandings at work there. Gil, you, you've got I mean, there, there are several really provocative parts of the book that uh, I think will get the reader's attention quite nicely. One, one of those is where you make the suggestion that uh, even though there are no moral defects in our perfected humanity at post, post-resurrection, uh, there may still be physical ones. Um, and even, I mean, even suggesting that something like Down syndrome for, for a person may not actually be, quote, cured 
in the you know in the in the general resurrection. Um, tell, tell us a little bit more about that. That I think would strike most people as a, a bit of a bit of an odd view. Uh, I'm curious as to what uh, you know. What what are some of the reasons? If, if if I've understood your view correctly, uh, what are some of the reasons that you hold that? Well, you have understood it correctly. When, when you started asking the question, I was sitting here sort of smiling uh, because although I haven't been thinking of this question, this issue sort of constantly over the years, the the first time I thought of this question was many many years ago in an argument with my mother. Oh, uh, who who. <laughs> Uh, who also thought such a view was rather odd, uh, in fact. Um, and I don't know how hard to push it. It's the sort of question on which about which one should not be, I suppose, overly confident and and, and uh, certain that one with one is right. But if if you'd had a, a child with Down syndrome who lived for uh, thirty five years, say, and that was that was the person with whom you interacted. It's not clear to me in what sense that person, in order to be perfected or glorified, to use the language Christians sometimes use about heaven, not clear to me in what sense that person should no longer be uh, downs, uh, but that rather the the downs itself will be glorified in some way. So, you know, if if you could magically, if you had a child born with downs and you could magically cure them at one day old, I'd say, sure, cure them. But but this is the person whose history you've interacted with for a long time. Uh, it seems to me that that's the person one should know in the resurrection. Now, I don't know, Christians, there's a long, long history of Christians speculating about what the resurrected body will be like. Many of the early church fathers uh, had views about it. A lot, lot of them uh, thought that w- all of us would be roughly 30 years old or so because that's the age at which Jesus died. So it's the perfected age. Origen, who was a, a brilliant, though uh, unusual uh, thinker, uh, suggested that resurrected bodies would be spherical because the sphere is the sort of perfect oh. Uh, oh. The circle is the perfect shape. Um, so there's no, you know, it, it, you'd be a fool to be too confident about exactly what resurrected bodies are going to be like. But it's a way to, the position that I suggest there is a way of saying that even a really enhanced life, whatever exactly the resurrected life is like, even a really enhanced life isn't necessarily what we might tend to think of it. Uh, And that uh, a person who had certain kinds of uh, defects might have might continue to have those or whether we'd want to call them defects any longer in the resurrection i don't know i mean christians have always pointed the fact that uh the reason christ has the marks of the nails in his hands mm-hmm. uh if he can have those then i don't know why some other things that in this life we consider defects couldn't survive also i may be wrong you know uh, as i say this is this is not the sort of question about which one should be too confident yeah and i think yeah very provocative one of the things that that occurred to me in this is if uh suggestion that if, if, say, someone is cured of Down syndrome in the resurrection, that he or she might essentially be a different person. Uh, well, and, if, and if that's true, then it sort of raises the question of what grounds personal identity through time and change. Which is probably a bigger question than I'm capable of answering. Well, I, um, uh, I mean, that, that, that is a difficult question. But the, the first thing I think of when you say that is whether if you could somehow magically suggest to 
Downs person that they'd be what I guess we could call cured in the resurrection. What they might say is, will, will you still know me? Um, that is say, will it still be me uh, whom you know? Now there is, I do think that there is in a human being some kind of uh, inwardness that persists uh, even through all the various uh, bodily and historical changes that we undergo. And yet you can't access that inwardness in any way apart from the body either. So I'm just very reluctant to think that the, that the, the, the body is insignificant for that, the persistence of that person's identity over time. Though I grant you, it's a deeper philosophical question than, uh, than I'm able to answer. Let me, let me just pursue one other really provocative area I think that came out. In the discussion of euthanasia and assisted suicide, uh, you argue that, that in, the, in the broader culture, the main grounds for supporting euthanasia are actually in conflict. Uh, the notion of personal freedom, uh, it's my body, it's my choice, and the notion of compassion for suffering. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit, more. how are those in conflict? I first learned that idea from uh, Dan Callahan, uh, who died fairly recently. It can't, it's got to be within the last couple of years, and who was, of course, one of the uh, one of the really leading figures in the beginning of bioethics in this in this country. But Callahan had a had an interesting book. I'm trying to remember the title right now. I think it's called "The Troubled Dream of Life" or something like mm-hmm. that, where he first argued that. And the the idea is, and and he persuaded me of it anyway, is that um, if we if we have these two sorts of reasons, and, and and actually these are the two reasons that are generally given in arguments for assisted suicide, and that make their way even into uh, legislation on it, that on the one hand a person needs to be self determining and autonomous, and therefore able to have control of his or her life, and on the other hand that we need to have compassion for the suffering and the people who are really suffering uh, terribly uh, should be able to ask for uh, help in ending their life. The problem with it is, as Callahan first pointed out, and I think I think he's right about it, is that these two kinds of reasons, each of which we can understand and each of which is sensible in a, in a certain way, but they're on a kind of collision course. Uh, on the one hand, if, if the fact that I'm self-determining, that it's my life and I should be able to choose how to live it and, and, and to end it if I want it, want to end it. If I'm self-determining in that strong a sense, then it's not clear why I need to be suffering greatly in order to want help ending my life, even though the assisted suicide legislation that generally is passed is, requires that a person be terminally ill and suffering. It's not clear. Maybe I just decide the game is no longer worth the candle any longer, and it's my life uh, to do with as I please. So why do I have to be suffering particularly? And on the other hand, if I'm really suffering greatly, do I need to be able to ask for help uh, in ending my life? Quite often, the legislation generally is set up in such a way that what's permitted is um, vol- assistance to someone who has requested it. But if you're not if you're not able to request it any longer, if if I'm say so deeply demented that I can't request it, uh, then I'm just out of luck as far as assisted suicide goes because I I can't any longer ask for it in a self determining way. But if if we ought to have compassion for my suffering and and for the uh, deep dementia into which I've descended or uh, kind of unconquerable pain that I'm experiencing for other medical reasons, 
why exactly do I have to be able to be self-determining to ask for it? Why couldn't you just uh, sort of do it for me? Um, it's not, it seems as if either of those reasons ought to be able to stand on their own. And yet arguments for assisted suicide and euthanasia generally require both things to be present, both self-determinate, the capacity for self-determination and profound suffering. It's just not clear why they both need to be uh, there. But of course, if we once grant that they both don't need to be there and that either taken by itself is a sufficient reason, then we have really opened the gate a lot wider for the kind of assisted suicide and euthanasia that we would permit. And I think actually in their heart of hearts, that's where a lot of people are today. I don't know, did that make, did that make sense now? It does. And I think there's, I think that's helpful to recognize that, uh, you know, we, we require both of those, I think, to put the brakes on abuses of one or the other of those reasons. Yet, looking at it together, there really doesn't seem to be any reason why you would need both of those. If And I think you're right that one or the other could easily stand on their own. But it does open the door to to things that I think make a lot of make a lot of thoughtful people pretty nervous, mm-hmm. um, and and I think justifiably so. One one final question for you, Gil, uh, as you sort of reflect on where the issues in bioethics are headed in the you know in the future, uh, what's what's one issue, one thing about the, about the the bioethics arena that uh, that you are most hopeful about? <laughs> please, sure please, please give us one thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me give you two things. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, how hopeful either of these ought to make us, I don't know. But one is that I think there are a lot of younger scholars coming along who will not necessarily be think themselves beholden to what sort of standard bioethics has come to think about different issues. Now, that may be good or may be bad. Can't tell for sure what directions they'll want to go. But I think there may be a willingness to rethink questions, not to think that, uh, for, for these people anyway, not to think that they must simply follow uh, the standard uh, route that bioethics has taken. I hope that proves to be true. Um, and I think there are people like that. How many there will be, I don't know. But I have some hope uh, for that in the future. And the other thing I guess I'd say is that with respect to some of these issues, some of the issues connected with uh, genetics and procreation in particular and so forth, I, I always think that eventually maybe nature will reassert itself, that we cannot simply act in ways that aren't faithful to our created nature indefinitely without that created nature reasserting itself. Now, that always raises the question, how long is the long run? You know, how long will it take for that to happen? And I have no answer to that. But I still I, I still always have a certain hope that that is the case and that we should uh, we should have a certain kind of confidence in our created nature to reassert itself. I hope so. Again, I, uh, no guarantees about that. But if we combine these two and get a few younger scholars who are interested in trying to sort out how that could happen, maybe some good things could take place. I think that that's a fair assessment, I think, to be guard, guardedly hopeful about that go, going forward. Gil, thank you so much for being with us. You, uh, you were one, just one of the most insightful theologians I know, uh, and you know the application to bioethics that you spent a career doing, uh, particularly in your work with the President's Commission, I, I think con- continues to bear fruit. Uh, I want to commend to our listeners your most recent book, Bioethics and the Character of Human Life. I think it's it's fair to say that that's a, you know, that's the greatest hits. 
uh, of your work uh, throughout a a very distinguished career in theology and bioethics. So, Gil, thanks so much for being with us. This has been just a delight to visit with you. Uh, And I, I again, commend your book, Bioethics and the Character of Human Life, to our listeners. It's a terrific read uh, and lots of very provocative and insightful stuff. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. The Think Biblically podcast is brought to you by Tablet School of Theology at Biola University, offering programs in Southern California and online, including our Master's in Christian Apologetics, now offered fully online. Visit biola.edu slash Talbot in order to learn more. If you enjoyed today's conversation with our special guest, Dr. Gil Maylander, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything. Everything.